one of the questions you asked me before we met today was what what do I see as the, the potential of um, struggling with ethics or working with ethics and anthropology and I think that the central potential of it is that it uh, enlightens us to the fact that we do actually have a shared human condition. Whoever the interlocutor is, that interlocutor will share with me the human condition of having been born and having to die. And those are very, very central existential things that we all share, which put us, puts us, in my mind, on a shared ethical uh, standing, which opens the possibility for ethics um, in, in their lives and in my lives and across. Welcome to this first main episode of Why Ethics Matter, a podcast brought to you by Communitas and the Center for the Study of Ethics and Community at Aarhus University. Today we are in the company of Associate Professor of Anthropology at Aarhus University, Anders Sybrand Hansen. Anders has about a decade-long research background within the field of ethics, and his research interests include trust and mistrust, sharing, care, and moral economy. This talk will evolve around the research idea of ethics after individualism, freedom and risk, ethics as sharing existential grounds, and how the anthropology of ethics is placed in a larger theoretical project. We will discuss how anthropology can and perhaps have moved beyond the suffering subject, how to relocate the interpersonal level and coexistence within a contemporary disciplinary focus on individual cultivation, and touch upon this tension between sociality and individuality, and the limits of both, which is found to be one of the main questions within the field. Now listen up for the conversation I had with Anas. So my first question for you is how long you have engaged uh, with what you consider to be the field of ethics and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the research you are currently working on. <clears throat> yes, thank you Amelia. So I've actually been working with uh, ethics uh, since my PhD, in which I did from 2009 to 2012. So for, what is that, 12, 13 years, that, that topic has kept uh, recurring in my work. And in the last few years, it's been like a central topic. Um, currently, I'm involved in a project with other people at the center, which we call Ethics After Individualism, with Maria Lowes, the uh, key investigator. Um, and I'm also involved in another project called Moral Economies of Food in Contemporary China. And uh, I have a project that I hope will come into being, which is called End of Ethics, about surveillance and moralism in China also. So those are the, the current uh, projects. And then keep returning to this um, ethical lens. Maybe you can give us some reflections upon when ethics is relevant in terms of analysis. And what do you think makes it relevant? Yeah, so I think ethics opens up a, a, a wonderful space for, for analysis and investigation because it, there's a claim, to, as far as I'm concerned, inherent in the concept of ethics that we are not entirely behavior. So there's something in the human that is beyond behavior and that is beyond uh, sort of logical self-interest. And that space, we could say, is the ethical space. Whenever we 
our ability to sometimes do things that are not uh, already predetermined and in our own interest. That entire space uh, we could call ethics. And so I think that's rather important mm -hmm. to investigate. Uh, we talked a little bit about what makes ethics ethical and um, the nature of ethics and we came to discuss uh, risk. So when is ethics no longer relevant and, and what can you illuminate like the nature of ethics as, as you see it? Okay, so in the, in the anthropology of morality there's been a, a move from uh, Emile Durkheim's original conception of the moral which more or less meant uh, what is good for society, that's what is considered to be moral. And then the, the break came just after, like 20 years ago, with uh, James Laidlaw in particular, and other people who critiqued this overly socially determined understanding of what morality is, and introduced a focus on individual virtue and, uh, and um, this very fascinating idea, and which was also known to be true from East, from Asian traditions and from uh, Middle Eastern traditions and from old European traditions, that we also cultivate ourselves. We're not just, as uh, Bourdieu would have it, um, being habituated by what happens to us. We also actively habituate ourselves in particular ways. But this direction then, and also with the use of Foucault, this has gained a lot of momentum, this approach to ethics. But this, we then ask in uh, Ethics After Individualism, is perhaps a too strong focus on individual cultivation for this topic of ethics and morality, because um, we are always also, as human beings, with other human beings. So our being with, which is a, a concept that we take from the continental philosophical tradition, we claim is central, right? So that human being is always being with, and that places us in a particular condition. So, what then might this human condition be? And that makes it necessary for us to consider um, ethics as uh, both interpersonal and also risky. Um, I think that there is a recognition that ethics allows us to make that we share a particular human condition, that is that we are born into this world and that we are going to die out of this world. And this is a sort of bread and butter to uh, continental philosophy from the 20th century. But to claim that this, is a, that this is what the human condition is and try to apply that idea to anthropological, cross-cultural research is something slightly different because it's a claim that there is a level of, um, of a shared human condition that comes before culture, so that you and I share with our interlocutors in the field this most essential, most, sorry, not essential, but most fundamental and also existential condition we share with all our interlocutors, which actually makes it quite, um, which makes it possible for us to communicate across, regardless of culture. And uh, if, I mean, in the representation debate in the 80s, and later on we have great arguments from people like Lila Abu Lugut, who, who showed us that, that we're actually not 
uh, entirely representatives of our cultures, right? So sometimes I will have more in common with a particular individual that I'm uh, that is my interlocutor in my field than I will have with another person in my home culture or whatever. And that that, that these things are patterned because they're patterned on gender and ethnicity and class and so on and so forth. But I think we can go even beyond that and say there is a an existential dimension that is far far beyond that in my opinion. And I think um, with the Anthropocene, we have a further dimension, which is that we also realize that our lives are not taking place against sort of a backdrop of infinite nature that will always be there, but actually taking place on, on a round planet that some people call Spaceship Earth, to, to, to point out that it's, it's in the middle of nowhere, right? And there's just one place for us. It's like a spaceship in the sense that it needs maintenance. So I think this dimension of, of um, that our lives take place in a shared environment, that is Spaceship Earth, points to the topic of care, yes. so that we need to take care of our environment and for future generations, but not f for religious purposes, but for actually enlightened um, environmental reasons. So that's halfway there, mm -hmm. and now we're getting to risk. Yeah. So the idea is that um, with this uh, recognition of a shared human condition, we see that um, we are not entirely determined, and we are also not entirely uh, atomized individuals, because we do exactly share this condition. And our interactions within this space becomes a shared ethical space because we share the same conditions. And these are um, risky, can, risky um, interactions because they involve the recognition of the other party's freedom. And so that's where if late law and uh, Foucault focuses on an individual freedom of self-cultivation, then I would like to argue for this sort of uh, responsive and dialectical relation where we recognize that through recognizing the other person's freedom and they recognizing your freedom is where ethics actually becomes possible. Because if we pre-program uh, our behavior to an extent where there is no choice, no freedom anymore, then we don't need ethics. And then there is no space for ethics. But No risk. Exactly, yeah. So the idea, I would say, is that ethics involves risk, a risky interaction with human, other human beings and other beings, where you allow them um, to make decisions on their part. And that leads to risky and, and, and rich relationships because they are allowed to grow and you're allowed to have experience with other people that will help you form your own virtues, but will also allow you to figure out how you want to continue to have a relationship with particular people. When to trust people, when not to trust people, who to trust, who not to trust, and so on. So we discussed ethics as what we share and perhaps also a way to overcome the representational crisis and the dichotomy between essentialism and anti-essentialism. 
as we talked about prior to this interview. So uh, Sherry Ordner has pointed out that ethics is perhaps at the same time something beyond culture and still deeply embedded in it. But if we return to ethics as something we share, the fact that we share some existential ground, as you say, with our informants, such as our inherently ontological insecurity and the fact that we are born into and die in this world. And I want to talk about this ethics as existential, as a shared human condition, in your view. And to do that, perhaps, perhaps we should, as you suggested, go back a little to the emergence of dark anthropology and the dialectically related emergence of anthropologies of the good, which showed us that in the middle of all the despair of neoliberalism and social and economic inequality, we find judgment, dignity, freedom, and therefore also ethics. So dark subjects and good subjects, you might say, seems both like common grounds linking our humanity to our striving to do better. So this long contextualization, can you comment upon this and perhaps illuminate the shift or integration for us? Where does that leave anthropology? Yeah, that is a that is a good question and also a long one. Mm -hmm. But um, I think it's um, your choice of uh, Sherry Ordner is very apt and it's a great article that sort of sets the stage for this discussion. And what Ordner says is that um, that the main thrust of anthropological work in the past, this article is from 2016, the main thrust of anthropological work since the 1980s has been moved towards um, what she calls dark subjects and uh, what Joel Robbins earlier called the suffering subject, so towards suffering, towards human hardship. And then they both map um, the anthropology of ethics as one alternative, or Sherry Ordner calls it, one of the others to dark anthropology. Um, so why is that the case? If we go back to Joel Robbins, he wrote in 2013, uh, Beyond the Suffering Subject. And I think this is a very important article, and I think I think the listener should read it um, because it it asks uh, some some great questions and uh, comes with some attempts to solve them all. So it asks why um, should anthropology be so involved with suffering if anthropology is a study of the entire range of human um, behavior and thought and uh, interaction? Why should we have such a mass production of studies on suffering today and not on all sorts of other phenomena that are human and, and, uh, and just as uh, thoroughly human as suffering. So, so he suggests another approach to um, the same question as you also suggest that is involved in dark anthropology which is in both dark anthropology and in an anthropology of the good you're interested in how human beings ought to live, but in dark anthropology, you go by it by going to places where things went wrong and uh, saying, it's quite, look, it's terrible what is happening here. And you're sort of indirectly suggesting that we should solve it and we can solve it and, and things like that. And, but on the other hand, then good anthropology of the good would be uh, an active, investigation of how people manage to live 
well. And uh, that's the project that Joel Robbins suggests for, for at least a part of the anthropology. And I think that's a right, uh, a very enlivening suggestion in this uh, discipline. I would like to add to it that there is a, that we, you could um, criticize, and I think rightly so, dark anthropology or suffering su subject anthropology for misrepresenting the human being misrepresenting the human being as a being that is um, defined by hardship and human life is defined by hardship, defined by suffering. Um, I don't think this is the case. I think this is one of the emotions and one of the... Uh, it's one of the emotions that we all live through, but it's not defining of human being. There's all sorts of other experiences that human beings have that are just as defining of the human condition. It is defining of the human condition that we will die, but if we, but then the question comes is what do we do before we die? And if, if the answer to that is suffer, then it seems quite boring, doesn't it? <laughs> so maybe we can do better. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that there, if you, I mean, if we wanted to be self-critical, then we could also say that the suffering subject anthropology actually. Mm, involves a kind of a, it could be argued to involve a very Christian form of morality. Sure. And it could be argued to re, um, reinvent original sin mm -hmm. and replace it back in as a founding, foundational condition for the human being. And I disagree with that. I don't mm -hmm. think that there is original sin. I think we are, the human condition can be described much better in existential terms mm. and in environmental terms, as I tried to do earlier. Yeah. So, one of the discussions that we've had in the anthropology of morality exactly um, goes to this question of whether we are, whether human beings are lacking or inadequate somehow, which is a big theme in uh, psychoanalysis, for example, in Lacan and, and which is also in a way a theme in Marxism, but but a, a response to that in and which I think is is present in the suffering subject anthropology, this idea that human beings are fundamentally inadequate mm. because we don't manage to do well, we manage to do bad things, right? Yeah. And one response to it was from Laidlaw, who turns to Nietzsche to say that we are we are not inadequate, we are fundamentally uh, super adequate yeah and and I think that's an interesting uh, turn yeah. it turns your perspective around yeah. and it's strange that it's become it seems our standard perspective has been to look for inadequacy yeah and not to look for the adequate or the super adequate why why I feel like asking why might that be I think it goes to um, the it, it comes from a, from a good ambition to um, make society and the world more equitable and more just and more fair. I think that's where it, that's where it originates. Mm. But this ambition to make the world a better place, mm. in, in short, it doesn't necessarily have to take 
the form of searching out suffering and presenting suffering to people because it's true that there is suffering but the very human capability of all, all sorts of other stuff is also very helpful mm. i think to to present to each other and present yeah. to all of us right yeah so that might be the solution to not dwell too much in the dark corners of Yeah, I, I agree with Joel Robbins there, and I think that's why that, that article is so important because that's where he points out that the, that our discipline has, has become perhaps overly focused on, on that to the um, disadvantage of, of other interesting stuff that human beings do. Mm. So I wish to return to you a little mm -hmm. bit and ask how do you approach ethics within your own work? And mm. perhaps what do you, um, what do you seek to contribute to an anthropology of ethics? So I have to jump back a bit to what we discussed earlier with the uh, with risk and stuff like that. So I think that um, that anthropology, that the anthropological study of, of ethics is a, is an empirical study. So we have the um, chance to see what takes place in out there in the between human beings and I think it's useful and possible to map particular patterns that appear in human interactions and I have a word for this which I call ethical repertoires and the idea is that we learn through our life together different um, forms of interactions that become part of a repertoire that we have that we can lean on in different situations and try out and see if it works for different interactions and examples of this what would be an ethical form of interaction would be uh, or is like gift giving trust and uh, sharing would all be examples of it where there's a risk involved because you're not entirely sure how the other party will act and therefore you you risk something but you do it in a way that is that is recognizable probably usually is for the other party because these forms of interaction are they become part of a repertoire so that we can recognize it uh, as prestations yeah uh, i think it's funny because i actually i don't associate repertoires with something that might include risk It seems like something becoming habitual in a way. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's that's part of it actually. Is how do we go from original risk taking to something that becomes patterned and uh, repeatable mm. and recognizable? Mm. So that's a good question, and I think that's that's. Um, It's a good question for anthropology because it helps us see that actually we don't live in a in a totally open phenomenological situation where all possibilities are open at all time. Well, maybe they are, but most of the time we don't behave like that. Most of the time we lean on repeatable patterns in our interactions. And some of those patterns, the ones that involve some form of risk and 
I would like to say that our, that our interpersonal and evolving form of risk, because we cannot predict the other party's behavior, mm. they belong within interpersonal ethics. Mm. So whenever we're studying those, we're studying ethics, yeah. I would say. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so as mentioned, one um, ethical form of interaction um, that I've studied is trust, and I've studied that in the context of food safety in China, and um, here there's an interesting uh, development taking place, which is that there's a very low level of food safety and people have low trust in what's available in the market. And the Chinese state also reacts to this, and the Chinese state reacts, it claims that it wants to uh, produce more trust, have more trust in society. But what it's actually doing is making more surveillance, so more exact information, which is actually counterproductive to trust, in my opinion, because, and not just in my opinion, but for, for arguable reasons, which is that um, trust as an ethical form involves risk. And me learning when to trust and who to trust and in what situations to trust is an protracted ethical work. It takes time and it takes experience. It takes experimentation on my side to learn, to be able to learn and build a virtue mm. in myself that allows me to lean on trust in the right moments and not trust mm. in other right moments, right? Mm. Um, but giving you instead total information um, makes us no longer need trust. Because if I have total information that I don't need to trust you and therefore my cultivation of trust as an ethical virtue will be lessened yeah. if the marketplace is just totally transparent or the state controls every aspect of it, then there will be no need for me to trust. Mm. So what is claimed to be trust here is actually the opposite, it's control. Yeah. And um, that's rather fascinating. Mm. So uh, returning to your own field, I, I see. I want to ask you about um, perhaps a personal experience around some sort of ethical moment as a field worker, something that might have shifted or troubled or contributed to your understanding of how to be ethical and how to coexist ethically in the field. Yes. So, in my last field work, I think this is a useful example, maybe. I was working with these organic farmers who were trying to produce safe and uh, safe food for the Chinese middle class. And they're doing it on a, on a model of uh, community-supported agriculture where producers and consumers share the economic risk of, of running a business together. And uh, in this context, I was uh, working with these uh, organic farmers and doing interviews with them. And one of the... Um, a part of the setting, of course, was that there was so much unsafe food on the market. So I wanted to discuss um, why other uh, farmers produced unsafe food, which is the case that there's a lot of con conventional uh, farming in China that produces food that is, uh, where there's a, a, a huge reliance on pesticides and herbicides, much more than the law, than the legal levels are applied. Mm -hmm. So you get food that's quite unhealthy 
and it's usually sold to strangers but not eaten locally, mm. suggesting that people know that they're doing something that's not mm. too great to people's health but to strangers' health. So that's part of the, the setting for my discussion with these organic farmers was that how can it be that you have farmers, conventional farmers, who willfully risk the health of strangers? How can we understand this from an ethical perspective? And this, I think, is a place where I had a wonderful amount of sort of pushback from my informants, my organic farmer informants. They were really not willing to discuss it in these terms. And they uh, wanted, they pushed back when I phrased it in these terms of ethics. And they wanted to explain to me, show me, and make me realize that I had to include the dimension of economy for this to make sense. So they wanted to show me and make me realize that these conventional farmers were living on a subsistence, uh, on the subsistence level, more or less. And they had relied on uh, herbicides and pesticides for years, meaning that if they were to change to a more healthy format of farming, their um, production would fall so much that they would risk their own subsistence. So what they were trying to tell me was that, that they had a, or they were showing me a solidarity that went beyond this sort of quite um, simple, narrow, yeah. kind of a narrow conceptualization of ethics where yeah. ethics was detached from everyday life. Yeah. And they actually, they actually helped me to reattach the ethical question to broader social conditions that people live under and made me um, made me able made me capable of seeing better the economic dimension and actually it I end up arguing in the article that this turned into that that this is uh, an example of moral economy in the in the terms of uh, and as what James Scott discussed as moral yeah. economy so the idea is that there is like a baseline level of solidarity here where uh, you're solidary with those who are on that level, kind of regardless of, of other mm. stuff, right? Yeah. I think that's, um, that's like a healthy portion of realism injected mm. into like the ethical questions that we ask and also the way that we perceive ethics as, as, as perhaps sometimes an action detached from other webs of relations and mm. other actions in a way. So I think a guy like this this informant Yender, he's also showing he's showing his um, his ethical virtues in a way by pushing back these kinds of questions, by trying to teach me something, right? Mm. And he's in a way also reminding me that we have a shared human condition because he's reminding me of the that we are and this is probably something that we perhaps tend to forget mm. because we are well off and all that kind of stuff but the shared human condition of course is also that we need sustenance so we 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 need sustenance every day mm. and we are reminded in certain situations that not all human beings are secured sustenance yeah and that uh, is not a taking for granted for everyone. Yeah. 
So we have round off with this lovely anecdote of how research on ethics and the habitual ideas of ethics that we take with us to the field can be disturbed by other informants living other lives on our shared spaceship Earth. This empirical pushback to our sometimes narrow notions of ethics helps us break the normativities of ethics as doing right and points us towards ethics as an area of life determined by risk. This lays forth, I think, the privilege inherent in thinking about ethics as acting normatively good in situations and instead guides our attention towards the ways in which people manage and also manage well, living under different circumstances than our own, and how they are acting upon the layers of possibilities specific to those circumstances. So in Anas's terms, we take with us the notion of risk, risking to be with others as a phenomenon demarcating a certain space for the talk about freedom within anthropology, and how social technologies such as surveillance threatens this condition of life as risky and therefore also ethical. This podcast series was brought to you by Communitas. You can visit our webpage at Communitas or Spotify profile for more podcast episodes.